Bismillah, wassalatu wassalam ala rasulillah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And good evening, good afternoon, or indeed good morning, uh, wherever you are in the world. Thank you so much for joining us uh, this evening. Uh, so what is this about? Uh, I refuse to condemn uh, resisting racism in times of national security is a book that the kind of participants, the speakers that you see have all been involved with um, putting together. Alhamdulillah, uh, I was responsible for editing the collection and bringing this, this gang of brilliant people uh, together for this collection. Um, it was my honor. My name is Asim Qureshi. For those of you who don't know, I am the research director of an advocacy group called CAGE. With us so far this evening, we have Shireen Fernandez, uh, who is an academic and an expert on national security policies in the UK. We have uh, Loki, who is a rapper and um, a political commentator, mashallah. I'm sure many of you are very familiar with him. Also, you'll be very familiar with uh, Hoda Katibi, who is, um, has her own company, uh, which is a conglomerate with others called Blue, Blue, Blue Tin Productions. And alhamdulillah, what they do is that they um, produce, produce ethical clothing uh, as a cooperative, um, which does really amazing work. And of course, Hoda herself, mashallah, has uh, extensive experience commenting on the fashion industry and is currently studying law as well so that she can take on these large corporations and uh, take them to task for all their illegal practices, inshallah. We have Shaf with us as well, who's our resident techie. Uh, mashallah, he writes brilliantly on all things tech related. He's also one of the founders of the RIS test, um, a, a way of tracking how Muslims are represented within um, films and popular media in general. Cyrus McGoldrick, uh, mashallah, he is uh, a man of many, many, many talents. He's currently uh, studying for his PhD um, and has you know, written just an incredible chapter in the book, really reflecting on uh, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who really sets the standard for how we understand what we and what we do and don't condemn. And so far on our panel, at least anyway, we have, last but not least, Tariq Yunus, who is a psychologist who has written extensively around um, kind of the racialization of Muslims and how that connects to Islamophobia in general, but particularly in relation to the implementation of the prevent strategy in the UK. So that's who we've got speaking here today. Um, I really want to make the vast majority of this conversation a Q&A as much as possible by inviting you all to come and join us and maybe to recount some of your own experiences and really the experiences that we're focusing on here and within the book itself is this idea that Muslims and people of colour more generally are, have always have this demand made of them and that demand specifically is do you condemn X, Y or Z? So nearly always with Muslims, it is, do you condemn terrorism? Do you condemn ISIS? Do you condemn this, that, or the other? As a way of almost verifying for the one who's making the demand that somehow we are worthy of humanity, that we have to prove to them by this act of condemnation that we are deserving to be seen as, as, as humans. And that's really why this book was brought together, to really interrogate the different ways in which we experience that question. Um, not all the, the writers in the collection are Muslim, um, but today we just happen to have a number of the, the Muslim writers um, 
within this discussion, but the book does look at issues outside of that um, slightly too. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually ask the, the speaker's initial question, and then hopefully from there we can, we can bring you all in, inshallah, and hopefully have a, an interesting discussion. And I, I really hope that some of you will relate to some of the content today and maybe share some of your own experiences too. So yeah, really, just to, to begin with, with all of you, uh, gang, um, can you, I guess, tell me uh, an anecdote that relates to, to this topic? you know, from your life and also a little bit about your motivations for, for wanting to be involved in the collection. And I'm just going to go in the order that you appear on my screen. So Shireen, let's start with you. Uh, yeah, Salam. Hi, everyone. Um, yeah, so I'll probably start with saying that I actually wrote my chapter, which um, looks at the, I guess, the tensions that exist within academia, but more closely, I think, thinking about the relationship we have to you know things that we write about or perhaps research about so I co-wrote my piece with a really good friend uh, and colleague called Azizat Johnson and it was basically uh, based on this incident that happened um, a couple of years ago now when Shamima Begum first hit the news and we wrote this article talking about the way in which her her body, her story, her life has been consumed by, I guess, the media, um, you know, people dissecting her very body, the trauma that she um, lived in. And we wrote this piece um, and, um, you know, we left it at that. And then a few days later, we got caught in this sort of, I don't even know, crossfire of like emails between academics who had copied both myself and Aziza in, you know, doing the very thing that we had, you know, very specifically said not to do, which is dissecting her very, um, you know, her very narrative story, um, you know, in these in these email threads until Aziza sort of intervened and said, you know, please CC us out of this. And then somebody replying back to us saying, well, and I thought academic research was supposed to be about argument and objectivity. And I think it was at that point that both me and Aziza, we were speaking about this idea that actually what's very different about, you know, us as people of colour, as, you know, Muslim women who do, you know, research on issues relating to Muslims. So for myself, I look at the prevent duty and its impacts. So for those who don't know, the Prevent Duty is a counter-extremism programme. And I think about the, the, the impact that it has on Muslim communities. You know, we are actually, we are our research. And that is why we do what we do, right? Because we want to, we want to understand why these things are happening to us, the problems that we're surrounded by, you know. And we are entangled in our research, right? And I think that was, that was the the main reason why we decided to contribute to this um, to this book because our piece really is an intervention to say, well, actually we refuse to take part in these discussions. We refuse to take part in discussions which, you know, question our experiences, question our embodied knowledges treat us as research um you know not respecting the fact actually that you know this is a lived experience for many of us and um you know this isn't just a problem with academia this is 
you know, a problem which exists, um, you know, in various different industries. You could be in journalism, um, you know, you could be, you know, an artist, perhaps, you know, even Kareem himself doing stuff, you know, rapping about this stuff. This is very personal. This is why we do what we do. And, you know, there have been art, you know, other situations in which I've been in where I have been asked in interview settings, for example, you know, knowing what my research is about, um, my research, um, you know, looking at prevent again, I've been asked, well, do you condemn the attacks which have taken place um, in London Bridge, for example, in Westminster? And this is in a professional environment, right? This is in an environment in which, you know, these sorts of questions you would never even think about, you know, this is this is a unheard of so I guess my point is is that this is a this was an intervention a start a beginning for us to have this conversation to say what well, actually we're going to refuse and it is actually very difficult to do so um you know I don't know how successful we're going to be but yeah it's a start so I'll end there thank you thank you that's like so well said and you know really sets the tone for this conversation Kareem can I ask you to Loki can you please come in and maybe okay. give it Okay, so I've worked out how to use this uh, microphone. It's happening. Um, well, really, it's getting caught in between the lines of what is an economy of threat inflation. Um, in order to push forward, essentially, profit-making uh, projects around securitization, you had to engage in an attribution of collective guilt and ascribe a sort of uh, irrationality to Muslims en masse and make what looked like, you know, according to Chris Hunter, one in 16 million chance of dying due to political violence in this country look a bit more like one in 160, you know, to justify policies like Schedule 7 um, stops, which, you know, I've, I've gone through Schedule 7 um, and I've also had the misfortune of going through a regular arrest. Now, in a regular arrest, you don't have to answer any of the questions asked of you. In Schedule 7, you are legally obliged to answer every single question that is asked of you. You have to give up your electronic items and give full access to them. Um, you can be detained for up to nine hours. Now, as awesome and other people's work has gone into in, in detail, you are, you know, 80%, around 80% of the people stopped under Schedule 7 are um, ethnic minorities, despite the fact that they're only 13 to 14% of the population. You're something like 150 times more likely to be stopped uh, under Schedule 7 if you are uh, deemed to be a man of Pakistani uh, origin, which, uh, if I remember correctly, is uh, IC4. Um, I see, yeah, I see four is how it's defined uh, by the police. And that's how I am defined by the police as an I see four, according to uh, the documents that I've seen. So it's interesting how these things um, are applied. But, you know, this is a whole big symbiotic uh, process, which uh, the rungs of Islamophobia, you know, really start with the security state. You look at an organization like the Henry Jackson Society, which has been essential in pushing these kind of policies and, and providing the intellectual foundation for these policies. 
who are the signatories on their mission statement? People like Richard Dearlove, the former head of MI6, people like neocons from the Bush administration and others. And so you have the deep state um, intelligence services knowing that they create jobs out of uh, this kind of uh, this kind of narrative to justify the securitization. But then further down from the deep state, you have the media um, that also play an essential role in in pushing these kind of ideas and kind of uh, astroturfing uh, campaigns to make it look like sort of grassroots demanding for more. Uh, stringent uh, and more harsh policies. We live in a period of time where the Magna Carta and habeas corpus, things that supposedly English society um, deemed to be uh, semi-sacred, have been rendered completely irrelevant to people that occupy that state of exception. And people that are racialized as Muslims are people that occupy that state of uh, exception in the period of time in which we live. In terms of anecdotally, what I could point to that may be of interest, which is covered to some extent in the book, are you know times I've been approached by people who have had uh, training sessions with Prevent, who have told me that Prevent are using one of my videos in their training sessions. Uh, particularly in Walthamstow, my attention was drawn to that. And also uh, Prevent Watch, the organization, uh, also uh, came to me and told me that my stuff was being used there. Um, you know, there's, there's so many, so many situations where merely thinking critically about uh, British foreign policy and questioning these, these kind of... Uh, these kind of rungs of, of sacred violence that our state has built, you are put in a position where so much more about you is brought into question. You know, the truth is that in the same period where Prevent was supposedly, uh, as far as I believe, sharing my, my video as part of their training sessions, if you actually looked at the EU figures during that period of time, the percentage of um, attacks uh, terrorist attacks that took place and were the responsibility of Muslims was something like 0.7% of terrorist attacks within the EU were carried out by Muslims during that period. But if you were an Iraqi, you had a, a much higher likelihood of dying in sort of acts of political uh, violence uh, from mysterious sources. So somehow you're in a position as an Iraqi where you're more likely to die from this particular type of violence where you have to somehow justify your existence and, 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 and show that you are harmless and are not on that conveyor belt towards political violence just because you think critically about uh, British foreign policy. And, um, you know, obviously it's something that millions and millions of people uh, I'm sure can relate to, um, especially during this, this terrible era. You know, the war on terror has gone on longer than World War I and World War II put together. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it looks like the U.S. Army and probably their junior partner, Britain, are due to stay in Afghanistan for decades to come. So we really can't expect things to quiet down. And especially when the political elite need um, a, a scapegoat or need something that they can use to encourage uh, a form of uh, horizontal blame and vertical solidarity 
they will again and again and again use the internal outsider and the sort of perennial enemy that they try to uh, depict the Muslim as. So, yeah, I expect things to get a lot harder um, as they are across Europe. Um, you know, that's why we need organizations like CAGE, and I hope that uh, everyone can uh, can support CAGE in what they do, because they absolutely have performed a really vital function in this period of time. Thank you, my brother. That was very kind of you to say. Um, as is everybody on this call, you know, I think all of you are, are, are doing such remarkable work fighting different fights um, in different spaces at different times, which is a perfect segue to bring in uh, Hoda Khatibi, who, you know, has, is doing a lot of great work looking at the different structures of securitization in the US. Um, and as someone, you know, who, you know, especially in the media has had to deal with this you know, kind of demand to condemn very, very explicitly. So Hoda, please invite you up. Salam. Um, thank you, everybody, for being here. And Asim June, as always, for organizing all of these events on new platforms, um, which is fun. Loki, you're doing great with the mic. <laughs> really doing amazing. I'm sorry I don't have cool background music playing, though. Um, it did sound like Loki was kind of freestyling that entire time, which was nice. Um, but yeah, so I'll try to keep this on the shorter end just so we can get to some questions. But um, generally, um, my section of the book was talking about two specific instances that I faced, one on TV and one on a panel um, that are, are not actually abnormal. And I'm sure like just scrolling through people's faces, almost everybody, if not everybody in this room has experienced some sort of version of that um, at some point of their lives. Um, but I think what was important for me is the ways in which um, I think my purpose in writing is like that we can and should demand better for ourselves and our communities. Um, and I think that a lot of the times, like the allures of capitalism, the allures of respectability politics, the allures of climbing up the social ladder, um, saying what you think that needs to be said in order to be accepted. Like these are things that I'm sure most, if not all of us, again, have grown up with um, as people of color in as Muslims, you know, in a Western world, um, in a you know, society of white supremacy. I had a lot of this internalized growing up as well, too. You know, like when people asked me about why I wear the hijab, I would like say it in terms that like made me feel like they would appreciate it rather than like why I actually was thinking or feeling at that moment. Um, and so I, I think that that's something that I like I grew up with and like growing up in Oklahoma, <laughs> super white, super racist, super like rural. Um, and I think played a really large impact in the way that I viewed myself and my identity, but also like really, really took away from my ability to build like a genuine relationship to my identity and a genuine relationship to Islam and a genuine relationship to just like being and existing. Um, and then once like, I think being able to, to realize that we're like living in this white supremacist world and the language that we've been using is just regurgitating the state, um, you know, uh, the way that we describe criminality is just regurgitating terms of the state. I think it's at that moment, then we can also take a moment to break from that and imagine what we want in the world, how we could be living, um, the communities that we could be building, the ways that we um, could be existing and thriving. Um, and I think that a lot of that is, it's like a an ongoing process for so many of us. Like there's not like a point where we've just like reached this, but I think there. I, I feel like at least there's not enough um, push for 
us to live unapologetic lives, not just as ourselves, but also in what we're building and what we're imagining. I think so much of our lives um, is about getting comfortable, about getting happy, about just like gaining wealth, gaining success. Um, but I think in doing that, we're playing again by their rules on their terms. Um, and so I think my goal with this essay was to be able to get people to take a moment to take a step back and reflect about the whys and where are you going and for what purpose and for who. Um, I think is really, really important. And I think it's really easy to think about this in terms of the fashion industry, which is, I think, a comparison I always make just because it's so relatable, because everybody consumes fashion, everyone's wearing clothes, everyone has some point of reference in the industry, and it's very clear the ways in which, like, um, uh, sort of trends are created and caught out in the fashion industry, specifically when it comes to identity, when it comes to hijab, when it comes to um, putting people of color in magazines, but then seeing what structurally has changed. Um, structurally, where has the labor been um, continuously exploited? And I think that when we're able to sort of like look at things through that same lens, but apply it to so many other aspects of our society, whether like people want to celebrate the vice president of the United States being a woman of color, for example, um, when none of the structural violence that she is going to be inheriting and um, acting through has changed. I think um, that's really important for me, at least, and what I'm hoping that um, people could get out of the essay and um, like share sort of ideas and visions about how we can go about building this world that we want on our terms, rather than sort of saying what we think needs to be said at the right place and at the right time. Thank you. That's such a wonderful um, summary of the, the issues that are at stake for all of us here. And yeah, I, I definitely, I really appreciate how you, you do bring these issues through, um, through fashion. Um, and it actually just shows you the ubiquity, what we're dealing with really uh, in regards to the multifaceted ways in which we, you know, we face this structural racism. And I, and I think the, the different types of voices that we have in the collection really reflect that no matter almost what where you are in society you know what you're doing somehow it always um connects to you this violence that takes place so just before i bring in um the other three uh, contributors to the book just to reset the room a little bit and explain why we're here we had to discuss um a little bit about the the topic of the book that we all collectively wrote the, the speakers that you see um, at the top, which is called I Refuse to Condemn Resisting Racism in Times of National Security. And what we were really trying to look at is how um, this demand of condemning terrorism, condemning uh, black people, condemning you know those who are not part of the dominant white society, how those demands are made. But more significantly than that, how we resist those demands, in what ways do we um counteract that demand that's made of us and you know all the the contributors to the collection i think really provide a pathway a really wonderful pathway to show that it is possible to resist that demand and there are very important reasons for doing so so i'm going to bring the the others in now um so next we have chef um who uh has a very unique uh take within the book which is really which was really wonderful to see so please Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I guess I want to start with a uh, a question that everyone uh, that I want everyone to have a think about is um, before you registered with Clubhouse, how many of you read the terms and conditions 
of the app or the privacy statement. Um, and I don't know if you, if you have, because I had in a few of uh, Kashan, for example, another a few of, of, of you have. But really what that highlights is, um, what I'm fascinated with is, is informational asymmetries that exists between users of an app and the app and the organization itself. And the informational asymmetry is that the app knows more about us than we know about the app. We don't know the algorithm, algorithms behind the scenes that govern Clubhouse or indeed Facebook or TikTok or any of these systems, but we use them. And, um, and these asymmetries exist and emerge um, when we engage with these platforms, either willing as willing users or, or unwilling participants. Um, and essentially, my, my chapter really talks about how this, this information asymmetries essentially govern the virtual and the physical spaces that we exist. Um, and and I, what I really wanted to do, I mean, the, the, the chapter uses the um, an example of me getting randomly selected at, uh, at Heathrow on the way to San Francisco. But really, it was a metaphor for, for, for a system and how you exist and you flow through that system. And essentially, this um, the information that's collected about us with each digital footprint that we engage with, again, willingly and unwillingly along the way, um, is, is, is multiplied behind the scenes because information and data isn't a linear or a one-dimensional concept. Um, information is it should be thought of as as an exponential. It has exponential characteristics, um, and it's not it, information as it exists as in like five plus five. It, it exists in five times five. Um, connection can be brought in between disparate pieces pieces of information, and if you think about the um, the 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 commercial capitalist uh, the, the surveillance capital side of things, it's almost unashamedly for profit. But by extension, um, this is then um, this is used by the state by uh, through justification such as in the UK we've got the investigatory powers bill from 2016, which um, which 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 allows GCHQ to harvest data at unprecedented scales, and what I hope to do with my chapter is to really think about how. This this information that gets that we that we leave along the way and that we we voluntarily and involuntarily give up um, creates a cage around us and and that cage exists in in silico as as a database entry and and we are then reduced to definitions and these definitions are made by other people not by ourselves or ho- of who we truly are. Um, so I end it with like we I refuse to condemn. Um, where when 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 we as people of color or, or Muslims are for, when we are forensically profiled at scale, and we're engaged, we're conditioned to be passive consumers. When in, when in reality, we should be um, critical, critically engaging with 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 everything that we that we encounter. Um, that's it from me. Thank you, Shah. Yeah, and I think that. Um... You know, it's 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 an interesting one because um, we uh, we we understand that there is this surveillance architecture going on all the time, and you know it can have a, somewhat of a debilitating effect. I think on on many people. I feel that there are a lot of people out there who just feel completely um, overwhelmed by the sense of 
of surveillance. And actually, um, Cyrus's chapter, who we're going to bring in now, inshallah, it just it reminds me that you know, you know, ultimately as Muslims, you know, we 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 believe in karam and katibin, like these kind of angels that constantly surveil us, every good and bad thing that we do, that we are constantly under that 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 glare. Except, of course, we know that that is for for our benefit in a completely different and otherworldly sense. And that's that's a way for me to bring in Cyrus, who who does remind us through his chapter that yeah, fine, there are all these people who are con- condemning us, but you know Allah condemns as well, uh, but in a very different way. So Cyrus, please. Yeah, Bismillah, assalamu alaikum to everyone. Uh, thank you for having me. Thanks for hosting this. Awesome. Uh, quickly, just to, to to introduce how I approached my chapter. You know, over the years, I think a, a number of us, many. Who became friends of mine? You know, those you know, people who worked in uh, maybe in the the nonprofit world, the nonprofit industrial complex, uh, as I did. You know, over some part of the last ten years, I think a lot of us, you know, personally bumped up into this this condemnation, this expectation of condemnation. You know, we felt it, we experienced it, uh, we went one way or the other with it, we responded, you know, as best as we could at the time. Um, but I think. Over the years, we slowly started to develop this awareness, you know, and the sense of humor about it. And, you know, we came to, to, to mock it even, you know, and, and to mock those who, 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 who seem to be so willing and even eager to condemn every single act of Muslim militancy. You know. But, you know, I think over the years, you know, we, we, we started to take for granted what was happening. And so really writing this, it was just... a a great opportunity for me to explore, you know, and to just even myself just, just kind of work through, uh, you know, my experiences of the last 10 years. Uh, and, and so for, you know, first of all, you know, a huge thanks to, to awesome, you know, for, 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 for gathering us, you know, into this project. Um, also, I'm just really grateful also to, to people that have read the, read the book so far. Those who have reviewed it, you know, uh, I've seen reviews online. It's been so moving, you know, to see how our thoughts, you know, our research or our experiences have resonated with people. Uh, and also thank you to all of you right now uh, for being here. You know, my chapter, it is Allah that condemns, you know, was my chance. I guess the theme that really rose from, from, from this, from my memories here was the tension between my own frame my own you know frame for what islam was and what it meant to me what it meant in my life and how it motivated me in my life and you know the the, the worldview really that, that 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 came with it a sense of, of 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 who we are as muslims and and who our enemies are you know and and uh, some sense of you know what our conflict was about you know the tension between that you know which you know, might seem to be to many might seem to be a radical Islam, but but it felt, you know, and does and feels true and good to me and, and important. But the tension between that and this very media driven component of the nonprofit industrial complex world in the U.S. in particular, that's really my experiences with the U.S. of, you know, this last decade of the 2010s. Um, and so, you know. Remembering that Allah condemns, it was a way to remind myself and and anyone 
you know, who along along on this journey with me, you know, that, you know, we don't, I just, I, I, I couldn't ever make myself really care, you know, for the approval, right, of, of, of people who deep down hate us, you know, who, who are our enemies. You know. They, you know, the, the first, um, you know, the first face, you know, the, the first time I really faced this expectation to condemn you know, it, it was an expectation to condemn, you know, the Palestinian resistance movements. And God forbid, God forbid that I ever be in a position where I'm condemning Palestinian resistance. Unbelievable, really, to, to think about it in these terms. But this is really uh, the hoops that they expect, that it is expected, you know, that uh, a Muslim professional uh, would be willing to jump through. Uh, and really, to, to remember that, you know, to put Allah first. You know, for me, it's it's it was it was an attempt to 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 be strong enough. You know, to remember and even to remind, right? That some of the groups that they want us to condemn are doing the good work. You know, and even those that aren't. You know, I even then I've I've made the argument that I don't. I speak for only myself here, but even those that aren't, perhaps that even if I don't agree with them, I I, I refuse to take the job of, of these groups. Over mistakes of the fiqh of jihad, you know, I, I really, I think it came to the point. It has come to the point, you know, where a condemnation, the act of condemning, you know, becomes a a regular oath of allegiance to the state, in opposition to any Muslim militancy whatsoever. It's an oath of allegiance that's expected regularly, and that's the 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 toll that we pay, right, to be quoted as serious people, to be understood in certain parts of the community as serious people, or to be welcomed uh, in certain government offices as serious you know, representatives of our people. But I think that we can reject this, and we should reject this. And if we don't, we're weaker, we're, we're weaker for it. But anyway, it was, a, it, was a, it, was, it was an interesting, emotional, painstaking process uh, writing my chapter. Uh, I was very grateful for the responses that we've gotten so far, and I'm very much looking forward to it our discussion today. So thank you all again. And uh, that was really beautifully put. Um, you know, and I think opening ourselves up to, to our communities was such an important part of this whole project, you know, and, I, and I, one of the things that I hope that I got across um, sufficiently um, in the introduction, which all of you did brilliantly in your essays, was this idea that we weren't writing to prove our case. We were writing for our own communities to show that there is a uh, there is a wealth of experience amongst uh, you know amongst us that we understand what's going on, that there are layers to this discussion. Um, that people might be able to recognize themselves in, but there are also these paths to resistance as well. Um, and I think really, Tariq Yunus, uh, you, you really captured that so beautifully in your essay, which of course, for those of you who, who haven't seen it yet, it's the one essay that's freely available on Middle East, uh, Middle East Eye. I think uh, it's entitled The Silence of a Coward, perhaps, um, or The Silence of Cowards, but it's under the name Tariq Yunus. I'm sure you can find it if you want to read one of the essays, um, if you haven't uh, yet purchased the book. And welcome Yasser as well. I'll bring you in in a moment. But Tariq, please. 
Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. It's good to it's good to see everyone, and uh, I'm really disappointed that Yasser just came in the room uh, so silently. It's, um, you know, I think technically he should get the mic, but anyway, I think first of all, uh, awesome. It'd be great. I wanted to just mention very quickly if you can potentially just briefly summarize, maybe in just really short sound bites. Uh, sort of the content of the chapters of the people who aren't with us here today. Uh, and I wanted to give a special shout out to anyone working in the security industry in the audience. Um, so I hope you, you, you have a lot to, to learn. Um, so yeah, just a little bit about who I am. Um, as Asim introduced me, I'm a psychologist, um, but really I'm a little more of sort of a closeted sociologist. Um, and I'm really sort of interested in the, in the ways um, psychology has played increasingly a very central role in how we understand how a post-racial society operates, right? So if anyone has ever been through counterterrorism training or, you know, um, counter-radicalization, counter-extremism, one of the first things you're going to note in their manner of speaking is that they're speaking very broadly, very generally, right? So they might speak to everyone here in this room that regardless of what you look like, um, you know, we're all equally susceptible to becoming terrorists in the future. And um, this is sort of that, that rhetoric of colorblindness and psychology, and I mean, psychology and psychiatry have long histories of racism, but it has a very central role in rendering uh, things colorblind because it ends up becoming questions of our, you know, psycho psycho psychological vulnerabilities, our psychological configurations, you know, extra sad if someone is going around with the wrong friends. So there's ways of psychologizing. So that's really, that's really my interest. Um, so I'm gonna do awesome a solid and actually answer his question among all the co-speakers because uh, he wanted us to <laughs> bring in one of our lived experiences. Um, so I will do so, awesome. Um, but I think first, I think it's just really important for me to explain, at least to me, this whole point of condemnation, where that comes from. And what we know condemnation is coming from the fact that counterterrorism is inherently uh, a moralizing industry, moralizing meaning. It's, it's, it's establishing uh, a powerful line between goodness and badness, right? So one thing to sort of just try and understand Islamophobia, if we draw on Salman Saeed's um, definition of Islamophobia, he, he, he considers that the depoliticization of Muslim agency. Now, for anyone who just woke up, that's just another way of saying Islamophobia is the management of ideal Muslim thoughts and behavior. And I think that's the sort of definition of Islamophobia we don't really fully talk about, right? Um, which is going to bring me to my example. But that's exactly what condemnation is, right? The politics of condemnation belongs within the umbrella of the sort of ideal Muslim thoughts and behaviors according to certain registers, which in this register would be nationalism, right? And there's reasons why uh, Muslims in particular are sort of on the boundary of nationalism, as, as we saw with Shemaima Begum. If you cross that boundary, then you will be rendered stateless. Um, so if we consider that, 
there's so many other things that open up from that, right? The other side of the coin from the politics of condemnation is the politics of forgiveness, right? So forget about now a Muslim doing a terrible act that somehow all of us have to condemn. You know, the politics of forgiveness is that, you know, a white supremacist attacks a Muslim and now suddenly all Muslims are going out and, you know, forgiving that white supremacist for his attack. So it, it below, if we, this is a sort of, this is sort of a lens that we need to start uh, considering. Um, and so from my experience, which probably took too long to get to, uh, to really put it in Awesome's face, but um, the experience I wanted to share is that I was recently invited to speak um, uh, in, a, in, in a health setting. I was invited, I teach on Islamophobia, I teach on racism in mental health. And I write about that. And so I was invited to come speak about Islamophobia in a health setting. And at the very, very last second, I got a phone call. Um, and this didn't happen too long ago. I got a phone call and they told me, um, you know, uh, if, if you're going to talk, don't talk about security issues. You know, don't talk about prevent. And I was like, and this, these are Muslims who are talking to me because they're the ones who invited me to speak about Islamophobia. Um, so, you know, I was, I was really struck because, first of all, if anyone here didn't recognize the irony, you know, I'm, here, I'm being invited to speak about Islamophobia, but here I am being managed to speak about Islamophobia in a very, very particular way. Um, and of course, it was very hurtful because those who were um, speaking to me uh, were Muslims. And that also speaks to so, sort of the broader issue of uh, this issue of condemnation. Um, but yeah, so I was, I was essentially, I essentially responded to them. Listen, I mean, if I'm supposed to speak about Islamophobia, first of all, I never speak about anything that I haven't written upon. And everything I've written about, I, alhamdulillah, uh, you know, I've been blessed with uh, immense privilege and opportunity to at least be able to publish, um, which I have. And I never, ever, you know, I never speak about anything outside of at least what I personally have published. Um, and so I will speak about these things. And, you know, that's inherently one of the problems that we're really confronting as a community. And they told me, um, okay, so yeah, we prefer that you don't speak then. And so I was, I was, uh, I was censored, right? And here we need to make a dis distinction between being censored, right? Like coming from above and canceling coming from below. You know, I, I, was, I was censored um, from speaking. Um, and you know, I, don't, I don't think there was any reason that was given. I, I, I heard it was a very um, popular event. But that's sort of the moral industry that, uh, of which condemnation comes from. You know, when we're saying, I refuse to condemn. We're really saying, you know, we're refusing Islamophobia. And when we're saying we're refusing Islamophobia, we're really saying we're refusing, you know, pandering to the, the, these representations, these ideals of, of what um, the nation state or, the, you know, um, or the capitalist industry or whatever it might be, you know, foresees as the ideal Muslim thought and behavior. Um, and of course, that doesn't only pertain to Muslims. There's also ideal immigrants. 
idea of everyone, you know, anyone who's sort of outside that that the 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 realm of racial capitalism. So um, I'm just going to end it there because uh, I really want to hear Yesser speak. Um, so yeah, I really look forward to to the discussion that we're going to have. Um, and I will do as you asked and try and give a very brief summaries for the for those who couldn't from, who contribute to the book but weren't able to make it. Uh, well, mostly due to te technological reasons, because only people with iPhones can join us, unfortunately. Um, the final contributor um, that we have today joined us a little bit late, but he can be forgiven because he is joining us from Australia. And it's very early in the morning over there. So Zakalah and Yasser. And I think Yasser actually, um, in many ways, should have been the first person to contribute because his book, Radical Skin, Moderate Masks, um, was really one of the uh, the early books to deal with this idea of, of condemnation culture. And he does it so beautifully um, as he kind of does this autoethnography of thinking about, you know, his position as, an, as a Muslim in Australia and how there is performance that we are constantly being told to play. Um, there's a particularly brilliant section in the book that talks about him on the way to a, a TV studio and, you know, having to really think through if he gets asked a question that asks him to condemn how he's going to deal with that. And it's and it felt particularly relevant to me because as I was reading that section, I was like, oh, my God, he's literally describing all of my thought processes every single time I go to an interview. So, Yasser, uh, welcome. It's so lovely to have you with us. Please. Welcome and salam alaikum to everybody. Uh, again, to echo the apologies, it's a little bit more difficult for me in Australia, but um, yeah. Uh, thank you, Tarek, for the kind words. And yeah, I, I think um, just to echo a sentiment that you out outlined in your um, discussion um, a little bit about my work was, as Asa mentioned, was just tracing the underlining pressures or sometimes seen, sometimes not seen that one carries when um, both politicized as a Muslim or when one carries the burden of being political as a Muslim, when you uh, accept that calling that you need to speak back to an array of um, injustices, both locally and abroad. So once that happens, once I, I guess my book also looked at that calling, that interpolation of the war on terror where I mean, prior to September 11, it sounds strange, but um, I think, I mean, I don't, racism never leaves you alone, but I thought I could get away with it, right? Unconsciously or otherwise, I was trained to be an architect and whatnot. And, and then suddenly, um, the day after, I'm compelled to answer a series of questions that I'm um, incapable of answering about effectively measuring my humanity and my national loyalty. So how Australian am I? How human am I? And all of that was recoded to basically ask a question about how much of a threat I am. And in the ensuing years, um, in trying to answer that question, inevitably, I think if uh, this is catching on Tarek's point about using Salman's definition of Islamophobia, inevitably I, I saw myself losing agency and I was um, erasing my own political horizons, how to speak about being Muslim. It was just really, I became situated to answer back, to try to ease white anxieties about my, my people, my religion, my faith, my <laughs> political traumas, to erase all of them or manage them. 
so they um, yeah um in that way um i don't i don't think i don't agree that i should be the first second or third to speak but i think all of us as who have accepted that calling or who cannot for whatever reason um resist that politicization of who we are and that that's the case for many of us um carry i think a lot of sense that our agency has been determined by what can and cannot be said. So uh, part of the problem of condemnation for me was not so much that the other side, whatever that means, the existing coordinates of the conversation, the the atmosphere that the war in in terror created, it wasn't so much that it was um, saturated with racism or Islamophobia. I I think that's obvious to most of us. And by being obvious, it makes it no less harmful. For me, a big part of that was how much I lost of my own growth when I was, as I said, called into uh, being um, either the, the good or bad Muslim. Um, so one of the analogies that I try to work through this, it's almost as if um, the war on terror created kind of like a chess game and where we're either pawns or rooks or knights or whatever. There's only so, so many moves a Muslim can make publicly. If you make a particular move, you're categorized and, um, as a radical, a bad Muslim a threat. If you um, make us other set of moves, you categorize as integrated good and so forth. So it was trying to trace all of that and especially the internalization of all of that. And, um, and <laughs> I know Tarek said he's a psychologist who is uh, a closet sociologist. Well, I'm probably a long, long time prior to my training as a psychologist, I was a sociologist who was a closet psychologist. So uh, it was always about exploring um, the internalization of my role as a Muslim in the war on terror. Thank you, Zaklah and Yasser. That's uh, it's just uh, wonderful to have you with us, especially because of the the early time. So I, I do want to invite people um, up now to uh, to ask questions. I'll probably let people in um, one at a time. So so do um, request, please. Uh, so let's start that process. And unfortunately, Hoda needs to leave us, I think, in about eight minutes. So hopefully we'll be able to hear from her at least once before we, um, before she has to go. So, Alberta, welcome. Uh, thank you, awesome. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for uh, your um, kind of many presentations for what you wrote about um, I, I just wanted to um, kind of briefly speak about, um, you know, something I learned, you know, so I'm speaking kind of within, from within the experience of Palestinians in America and the kind of like Palestine um, solidarity movement. Um, and, you know, one one thing I, one quote I came across, and ever since I came across this quote, whenever I kind of give talks or speak about Palestine, I, I reference it because I think it's very helpful, is um, this quote from Toni Morrison about um, the function of, of white supremacy um, and colonialism and empire, which, I mean, she references it as racism, basically, but she says the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. Somebody says you have no language and you spend 20 years proving that you do. Somebody says your head isn't shaped properly, so you have scientists working on the fact that it is. Somebody says you have no art, so you dredge that up. Somebody says you have no kingdoms, so you dredge that up. 
none of this is necessary. There will always be one more thing. And when I came across that and read that, it kind of got me to start realizing something I'd always kind of felt but never really, you know, expressed properly, which is basically that I, I feel like, you know, uh, distraction is one of the main functions of Zionism as well. And it's this idea that, you know, Palestinians are kind of constantly expected to, you know, um, prove to go back and kind of prove our history and prove even things like, yes, we have cuisine and yes, we have special kinds of dancing and all and, and, and all these different kinds of things. And I mean, so on the one, so all these things, obviously, immediately all these domains become politicized. Um, you know, eating hummus all, all of a sudden kind of like becomes a political act or having some Arab, Arabic restaurant or Arab restaurant, I mean, in, in, in America becomes like this, you know, political frontline or something. But at the same time, so you have like people on one side, and I've seen this a lot on Clubhouse, for instance. So you have like these Palestinian filmmakers who go around and say, oh, we don't want to have to talk about Palestine or we don't want art that's political, or, which is obviously whack and ridiculous. And we don't need to get into that because I feel like this is a space that gets that. But on the other hand, I've always kind of felt uncomfortable with the idea that like, you know, with these activists who spend so much time, you know, talking about Palestinian cuisine or, or like talking, you know, doing like DepGap, well, I don't want to get into DepGap protests, actually, let's just set that aside. But like, you know, just like where all these domains become like these, these areas of resistance. And I understand where it comes from, because I get that, you know, that food and culture and all this is being colonized as well. I'm not saying that you need to remove it entirely, but I just feel like there's a way to do that and to address these things um, without becoming almost obsessive over it and without like spending so much time trying to prove this history and trying to prove, you know, the existence of Palestinians and so on. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm just curious what everyone thinks about that. Like, how do we talk about these things in a way that isn't constantly responding? I mean, as Morrison says, there will always be one more thing. You're always going to have to prove something else, let alone talk about like how violence is endemic to Palestinian identity or hatred of Jews or something like that. Like even just these more, you know, naturally less political domains as well. Thank you so much. That's, that's such a great um, comment and question as well at the same time. Hoda, I know you need to dash, but I would love to hear from you on this one in particular, because I know you've thought a lot about these issues. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, that's a really great question. And I, um, I know a lot of people can resonate that one in different ways, too. Um, I think this is also something that I feel like I've learned over time. Um, and I first, like when I first started my work writing, um, I was trying to like answer the question, like, how can I convince white people that Muslims aren't terrorists, right? Like, what can I do that will like make people like, because if, if a white person doesn't think I'm a terrorist anymore, then I won't get punched in the face for wearing a hijab or like, they'll stop bombing our countries. So that was a lot of the way that I sort of like, and I mean, it's a lot of internalized white supremacy, a lot of internalized Islamophobia about trying to like humanize us. Um, but I think it was after I went to Iran, actually, for the first time, not for the first time, sorry, doing research and um, talking with a lot of the people that I was um, doing interviews with and just asking them, like, now that, you know, you spent all these hours answering my questions, like, how, how can I support your work? You know, they're all artists and creatives. And all of them mentioned, like, you know, we know your work is like anti this, anti that, like, etc. But there's nothing that just sits and celebrates Iranians and Iranian culture and like who we are um, at the end of the day. Like it's always trying to like create narrative in opposition to like these like frameworks that America has assigned to us or the UK has assigned to us rather than being able to just like 
take a step back and be like, well, I'm going to focus on my people and I'm going to focus on content for us. Um, like, not like white people, sure, need to learn that Muslims aren't terrorists, but also our people need to understand how we can um, unlearn like securitization frameworks, how we can unlearn internalized white supremacy and internalized Islamophobia. And at the end of the day, each of us here only have 24 hours in the day. And if, and trying to convince people of our humanity takes up significant amount of time and also emotional energy um, that we just don't need to be doing. <laughs> um, I think that we have to be creating and imagining and developing language on our terms with our own people. Um, I think because if we think about what the goal is, right, it's not to like have Americans um, or Zionists, for that matter, accept us so that we can like climb up the ladder in this society, or like say yes, now my neighbor likes me, <laughs> so I can like come over to their barbecue or whatever the hell, you know. So, I think that's not the goal. The goal is to be able to work toward liberation and work toward freedom and work toward um, being able to not just survive and get by, but like thrive. Um, and I think in doing that, we can't play by their terms and we can't waste convincing people that we are human and that we have basic things like the right to life and the right to dignity. Um, and instead, I think my shift has been to focus on writing for my people, using language that um, may seem provocative to white people, but I don't care because they're not my audience. Um, and being able to create security I don't like that term, create safety, <laughs> create community, create um, all the things that we need within our own communities because we have everything that we need. Um, we do have that power. We do have that agency. We have that strength. We have that language. Um, and I think a lot of my work, at least, is like making people or helping people recognize that it's, it's us, like the state needs us more than they need them. Um, the United States needs us to vote in elections more than elections will do everything for us. Um, and I think that they need us to play their game by their rules so that we don't build power outside of their structures and outside of their terms. Um, and obviously it's challenging, right? Like it's, it's hard to see all of these like comments every day on social media, people saying bullshit, people asking you stupid questions. Um, on, and like, and it depends on the setting. I think that there's different ways also if, on like a very like technical or like tangible level, like different ways to address things. Um, I know if I ever get a question about my hijab, uh, and or like a, a talk I'm giving about empire, I'll be like, this has nothing to do with what I'm talking about right now. And like, this is, a, you know, it's, it, I don't have to explain any of what uh, you want me to explain for you. And I think that there are very clear ways to just draw that line and be like, I don't want to engage on your terms. We're talking about empire and like surveillance and we're going to keep talking about that. Um, and so I, I think it's feeling comfortable drawing those lines for yourself, deciding what questions you're going to engage with and making that very clear every time someone asks you um, and deciding how you're going to spend your 24 hours with who and for what. Um, and like if, if people who aren't with it eventually come and learn and like are able to also like read and, and educate themselves and join our side, great. But that's not where I see my role and that's not where I, I, I see, I guess where I see myself the most exhausted. So I think we have to decide what makes us as people, as individuals, um, feel like we are thriving, feel like we can create these moments of liberation, not just down the line for ourselves, but also today in these moments. Like, how can we experience that um, and create these worlds that we can also exist in um, 
even if these moments are fleeting, right? Like even if um, in every panel that I give at universities, for example, the first thing I say is that, um, you know, I know I go through a lot of complicated topics, so everyone can feel free to interrupt me unless you're a white man, in which case you have to raise your hand because <laughs> white men have interrupted us enough. And that itself like shifts the tone of the room and people of color are always more excited to engage and white men always raise their hand. And so I think it really is just like setting out the terms that you want quite literally, in every space that you occupy, um, and creating spaces for your people um, in ways that aren't given to us and not encouraged to do so. So I don't know if that's helpful, but that's all I was going to say. And I'm really sorry that I do have to jump, um, but I know everybody's in great hands up here. Um, and yeah, enjoy your days and nights and buy the book if you want. All right. Salam. Thanks so much for organizing. Thank you so much, Hoda. Um, yeah, we're still... Um open for, for lots of questions, um, anybody who wants to ask one. Um, and we have Alexandra. Assalamu alaikum. That was really, really excellent. Alexandra, can you hear us? Can I come in um, just on Alberto's point? Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, please. Yeah, I just sure. wanted a sort of piggy bank of what Huda was saying and thinking about what Alberto was saying, like, you know, the fatigue that a lot of, you know, activists or, you know, people researching their own communities or, or this constant having to face racism every day, right? It is tiring. And I think... Um, Thing that myself and Aziza were trying to put across in the chapter, but I guess as part of everyday practice of thinking about refusal as political, right? That creating boundaries to say no and know when not. And I think, you know, just having like small support networks to reach out to each other to be like, oh, hey, Tarek, should I do this interview, for example? You know, things like that have just helped because. Um, you know, it gives us an insider sort of understanding of, you know, what to expect. And I think those sort of networks are so important, right? Because, you know, to be able to refuse in itself is, um, it's such a, it's such a um, important statement to make, right? Um, and I would love to see that being implemented more um, within our communities. I know, obviously, saying like refusal, it's not an easy thing. I'm not saying that it, but I would love to see us support one another enough to be able to make these decisions. Um, and I just wonder if anybody else, I think maybe Alexandra, she's off mute, maybe she wants to come in. Um, no, it's okay. Would you like to be a point? No, no, please come, come. Thank you so much for bringing me up stage. I'm kind of starstruck to be honest, because there's so many greats here. Um, my question was mainly to Chef because he spoke about the terms of service. So I'm a software engineer and I work primarily in data science and we collect a lot of data and try and use that data to predict people's behaviour. And I wonder, because as a Muslim, I find that thinking about surveillance has given me a sort of duality of extreme apathy and hypervigilance. And the apathy is usually in relation to technology. So I don't try and find, for example, that don't spy on you and the hypervigilance is even in my private space I just imagine there's always the omnipresent 
um, state, listening to my conversations, be it phone calls, be it texts. And I find myself, and I'm not sure if any other Muslim experiences it, but self-censoring to an, an acute level. Um, and I don't know even if I'm doing that in my head, if I'm even censoring my thoughts just because I'm scared that something might spill out and it might be misinterpreted. So I guess my question is, how do you remove that barrier um, for, for, you know, the way that you communicate with other people while also being a bit more proactive about um, you know select, selecting your technology um, and picking platforms that you know, for example, where your data isn't being harvested. Thank you. Um, um, it's a it's a difficult question to answer because um, essentially the only way to feel confident about not being surveilled, but by technology or by the, the technology companies is to disengage from from platforms, but but by by, the, by extension that doesn't just mean that you're boycotting or not using an app or a platform. What that what that really means is that you you're essentially disengaged from society because conversations happen in these places. It happens on Facebook. It happens on. Um, Twitter and 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 you know for the for the younger ones you know the latest kind of memes and culture that exists on TikTok and whatnot. Um, so it's not it, it's a difficult one in that by boycotting platforms you're you're boycotting conversation news and current affairs and that kind of thing. Um, I mean, there's there's, there's there's any number of lists out there. I mean, I mean yourself, you 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 you're you're a data scientist, so I'm sure you're 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 familiar you're familiar as well with. There's so many lists out there as to what apps to use, like the Signal for messaging and whatnot. But really, the the, the question of this self censorship because we're surrounded by technology and these and these systems. I think for me, the way I use the way I think critically about it is. Um, the the way that companies profit and this and apologies if I'm I'm teaching you to suck eggs here because you, you know you're from the industry yourself but a lot of these companies they benefit from your behavioral uh, behavioral um, data and it's how you engage with the apps and you you know by 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 you know the, the very the very the very nature that we're using this platform Clubhouse. It's not cost us a penny to to um, to to use it, but we don't really fully know the implications of what they're recording. And the, the, I mean, in in the terms of conditions, they say that if they feel like it's a for, for national security, they will record the session. And you know, this may well fall under that that that, that criteria. So I guess it's really about critically under critically engaging with the platforms that you use. I mean, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Clubhouse. I'm on. I don't. I don't. I've never. I've never, I've never used TikTok. Um, but but it, in terms of choosing the technology you do, it's, it's about critically engaging with it. It's impossible to avoid it completely. Well, it's not impossible, but it's very difficult to avoid it completely. But it's understanding that it's your behavioural data that's most valuable to these organisations. Using an app once is great, but then how you use it, when you use it, where you use it, who you use it with, that kind of thing is really, really gold um dust for them so it's understanding that is the value and when you're when you're using a, a, when you're using an app or a service um it's important to understand that it's a, an exchange of value 
and I don't think that's something that's I'm sure you know this because you're 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 from software, but but broadly speaking, um, engaging with any technology is an exchange of value, and that value, um, you're you're richer in that sense because you have the data to give to these platforms. What you're getting in in return is a piece of functionality or 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 something. But it's that exchange of data, exchange of value, and I think the more we see it as an exchange of value, that better helps so that that helps us to better frame the the transaction i hope that makes sense it does thank you i actually want to bring in um loki first because he actually writes a lot about uh, algorithms in his chapter in the book but then after that i'm, I'm hoping Tarek might say something to us a little bit about the self-censorship aspect of it uh, and maybe some of the psychology that's involved in that Hi, I'm back. Just trying to work out this mic. To briefly respond to the question that was asked previously um, by Alberto. Sure, go ahead. There's a push um, by those in Israel to adopt falafel, hummus as national dishes. There's a push to adopt the kofia as some t some sort of symbol of um it, of, of israel basically so in this situation i i don't think that that's a distraction for palestinians to assert a relationship between themselves and those things especially when you look at the side of the cultural war that i'm not sure how many of us are aware of mustarabin it's uh it's um the word originally mustarab comes from people that lived uh, during the time when the, the Umayyads originally um, got into Spain and, and you know, different groups from Rabatun to Al-Muwahidun and other groups and the Mulathamun ruled um, Spain. During that time, a person that was Spanish that would learn Arabic would be referred to as a Mustarab. Um, you have spies within the Palestinian communities who are Israelis who adopt aspects of Palestinian uh, culture in order to lead people to believe that they are Palestinians. Um, there's a great uh, documentary by Al Jazeera, Sanduq Al Aswad, about Al Mustarabin. Now, when culture is that much of a site of conflict and um, something that Israelis and Zionists seek to, to um, commandeer for use to paint some type of civilizational continuity, I think it's completely understandable that Palestinians would view that as, as an important front for them to be active on. If anything, I think that especially with the discovery of the language of Ugaritic in the 1930s, which many um, uh, specialists and experts in the field even consider Ugaritic a language that goes back over 3,000 years. Some even put it as a dialect of Arabic. Palestinians could be more assertive in, in, in stating a civilizational continuity. And, and I think that that's an important part of this. I don't think you can so easily be dismissive of those that um, like to make the point around falafel and hummus and, uh, and the kofiya method. 
Um, in terms of, you know, obviously we know that prior to the establishment of Israel, both, both the left and the right of the Zionist movement had consensus on the fact that the Palestinians were indigenous, from Ben-Gurion to Vladimir Jabotinsky. Both of them were in agreement that the Palestinians were indigenous to the land. It's that question that is thrown up and is a sort of central foundation of Palestinian dispossession. At least in the present, it's, it's something that's used to, um, you know, let's say Palestinians only go back to Al-Futuhat al-Islamiyya, Mathalan. And I think that if that, that line is drawn even further back to Ugaritic civilizations, to the Canaanian or others, then, then I think that's an important thing that, that should happen. Um, not to go on too long about that, um, but uh, I think the other, the other um, question in terms of how people are, um, their information is being taken and used, you know, first and foremost, it, it's great also to look at a book um, called Surveillance Valley by um, Yasha Levine which um, in it, his assertion is that originally the ARPANET, the original project for the internet, was about um, dealing, it was, it was a form of counterinsurgency following the defeat in Vietnam. The US, rather than it being what we generally, the, the understood um, trajectory of the internet has been from an internal um, database for the US military, and then it became privatized and, you know, along the way it became what it is today. Um, what he uh, puts forward in the book is that from its very inception, it was, you know, the ARPANET, when it was getting built at um, several universities, MIT as was one of them in the US, there were student occupations and protests against the uh, designing of this ARPANET because they um, believed the students believed that it was going to be um, detrimental to people's um, rights and we're now in a stage where we need um, a serious campaign for digital self-determination because so much about what we do is you know and as it was said uh, earlier by Shaf um, you know well said that these these devices that we, we carry with us know more about us than we know about ourselves and that information generally as far as i can tell seems to be available to the highest bidder and that's just on an advertising level um, when it comes to security issues we know that a lot of the companies are are worried about these uh, antitrust cases coming up and 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 what they're trying to do is as much as possible do the bidding of the uh the the US state so when it comes to situations of foreign policy and ideological stuff they happily um, censor on behalf of particular governments that request it of them it seems to be the case anyway um, so yeah it's, it's important for us to think critically about the technology that we are using and to be aware of um, you know the, it's, it's, it's probably a daily struggle for all of us to keep away um, from this technology. And I think that what really has to happen is we have to get back to as much as possible being a print-based uh, uh, thinker, you know, rather than a screen-based thinker. 
because it's the, the a book The Shallows by um, Stephen Carr goes into the effect that use of this technology has on our brains, even our ability to concentrate for large, uh, large um, periods of time, but also um, the way we connect uh, ideas and thoughts. We are being physically changed by this constant usage of uh, screens and this, this sort of connection to the digital world constantly. But obviously in terms of information, we, we have very, very, we have zero control over what is done with the most intimate aspects of our lives. And that's a really serious problem because it concentrates more and more power in such a small group of people. Thank you. I, I didn't mean to leave an awkward silence. Um, so funny. <laughs> is, is somebody going to come in and, uh, and yeah. cover? That's it. It's over. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you gave, you gave all down. the information. There's nothing left to talk about. <laughs> oh, I was talking this whole time and I didn't realize I was, in, I was uh, muted. So that was interesting. So you didn't actually hold silence, Kareem. I just thought I was being doing a, 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 a follow-up to you, unbeknownst to me, I, I really wasn't. Um, yeah, so I want to bring Dardik in at this point as well, because I think he uh, he has a lot to add. You know, I, and Dardik, I think this is something that we all suffer with at various points, right? Even those of us who, who try and inhabit a space that is a little bit more radical, you know, we try and push back against institutions, we try and push back in media interviews, we still constantly feel this um this pressure to somehow survive by performing in certain ways because we feel this constant surveillance on that uh, on us and actually even even yasser I, you know i hope that maybe you can uh, come in on this afterwards as well but yeah please start. i sort of feel like yasser would speak to this uh much better but um yeah here Bismillah. I, I think there's, I think that's that's really sort of at the crux of the experience of the issue of you know of what we're talking about um, and uh, what what Sister Alexandra had mentioned. I just wanted to mention just a side point on surveillance. I, I know on <laughs> surveillance wasn't uh, the the question that Loki was supposed to answer to either, but um, I I just wanted to mention. Oh no, actually that was the question I was supposed to answer to. So I'm going to steal also this question. Um, I, a really interesting sort of FOI, um, freedom, freedom of information, um, uh, sort of information like uh, leak came out recently, um, or it was rather it was requested, and it stated that half of the councils in um, in London employed the exact same uh, technology, or, or rather the exact same software that's employed on the Uyghur population in China. And so there's a globalized element to this, whereby I think the company, I, I, I'm not so sure exactly what it's called, I think it's called Hoboken, and they do um, behavioral scanning, they do facial recognition. And so the, the, the software that's actually used on the Uyghur, on our Uyghur brothers and sisters, um, that exact same company is actually being used, is being employed uh, and paid for in London as well. And that just recently came out. 
so anyway, just putting that as a sort of unfortunate tidbit that I feel like uh, more people need to be made aware of. Um, to answer the question, I think about the experience. I mean, <clears throat> I think one this 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 one concept of sort of that 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 gaze upon us, whereby you know we're constantly, you know, we feel like we're we're walking around eggshells. Um, you know, this this constant state of almost it, this is anxiety. Um, a, a, a term that's being used, which I like, is called affective surveillance. Affect being like emotions. And so there's, there's this feeling, this, it's a very embodied experience, you know, um, whereby you kind of feel like, you know, you are uh, perpetually, you know, you're perpetually existing in the gaze of others. And that's, that's, that's essentially what Islamophobia would do if we think about it in terms of structures, not in terms of the sort of individual, you know, attacks and abuse, et cetera. You know, if we want to think about institutional racism, it's a very embodied experience. Um, and I think that's the sort of thing that we've really, really failed to capture as a community when we're talking about Islamophobia. Um, even when we're talking about things like, you know, CBE, you know, counter extremism, you know, a lot of the our rhetoric against CBE is thinking about, let's say, how many Muslims get, you know, referred to CBE, right? So we sort of play the stats game, you know, we try to speak, we talk about like, okay, you know, the percentage uh, or, or like the ratio of Muslims to, to white people is 40 to one, right? Now, there, I, I've been often telling people to not play that game. The reason for that is actually very simple. One, uh, the government is actually doing concerted concerted effort to uh, try to raise the stats on white people being captured. Of course, that doesn't mean it's racist. See, an, uh, an industry can remain racist even if more white people get get caught. You know, it just means that the the method of their capturing, you know, their whiteness um, proves as a privilege for them being protected of being caught just by by their by their sort of physical appearance or by their behaviors alone, most likely they're getting caught because they made uh, a very explicit gesture towards being part of a far right. Um, but for us, obviously, because it's so embodied, uh, for people who are racialized Muslims, because it's so embodied, um, it's, it, it goes far deeper than that. And, you know, in my, when I was doing uh, interviews with healthcare staff, Muslim, and non-Muslim healthcare staff that were going through counter-extremism training. You know, one thing that I found was so powerful, but we've yet to really fully capture, was just how anxiety-provoking it was for them in that moment. And the problem with anxiety is that it's something that's also very difficult to capture, right? It's very hard to reduce it to numbers. What's that experience, you know? I remember one psychiatrist, he's like, you know, he was just repeating, you don't feel safe. You don't feel safe. You just don't feel safe. That's how he was talking to me. And what he's talking about not feeling safe was actually the fear that his colleagues might refer him to, uh, to prevent for counterterrorism. And it was obviously, uh, it was a very powerful experience for him. But we haven't captured that because it doesn't fall into statistics, right? So all of this sort of pre-referral experience, which is really 
the 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 you know the meat of the sort of you know the war on terror that experience that sort of how it's impacted us as a community you know it's all pre-stats you know the stats everything in terms of arrests made schedule seven prevent all of that you know those those are the things that sort of we see those are the physical manifestations of you know this this an atmosphere right something that that really can't be captured and it just made me think once um i wanted there was there was a number of youth uh in my wife's family and i wanted to you know i want to take them to uh to to a beach we just wanted to chill um and it, i think it was either f- very late in the night or very early in the morning i can't remember and uh one of the mothers um came to me and she said um you know i i i would really rather that you don't do this and i said oh yeah no i i you know i was trying to sort of validate what what it was she was afraid of what it might be dangerous um and you know i thought you know based on previous discussions it might be something related to gangs you know but i mentioned you know we're going to be safe um and she's like, no, 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 you know, she was like, yeah, the police. And I was like, yeah, you know, the police are going to be there to, to protect us. You know, like that's I mean, that was I was trying to sort of, you know, I was kind of in half conversation with her. I was like, yeah, don't worry about it. the police are going to be there for us. And she's like, no, 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 the police. And, you know, it sort of dawned on me. And then I was really in the conversation where I realized her fear wasn't sort of just gangs or whatever it might be, you know, in her mind, it was actually that the police were going to come and take her children away. Now, that was the first time I ever had that conversation with her. And that was the last time I've ever had that sort of conversation with her. And I think a lot of that experience, the hypervigilance, um, I have a hypothesis that we haven't explored at all, you know, whatsoever, I think, as a community. If we really want to tap into that anxiety, that sort of moralizing that comes into that pressure to conform, condemn, forgive, all of that, um, we would probably find it among our parents, vis-a-vis, our ch- vis-a-vis their children, right? You know, she, she made it apparent there because there was no longer any sort of performance, right? She, she was really just afraid that potentially the police might take her children away. Um, and it would have never been caught statistically had this conversation not been opened at that particular moment in these particular conditions, right? And then everything so go, go, sort of goes back to normal. And then she's like, yeah, work hard, study hard, conform, you know, go up the, go up the social ladder, you know, yada, 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 right? Which is a sort of rhetoric that we hear. But I, I believe there's so much there that we're really not capturing among that sort of anxiety. And, and we know from anyone who's been ever active in the Muslim community, you know, we know how much um, us as parents or our own parents um, have been uh, very, very, very scared for us. Um, and one of the greatest sort of uh, shames, I would say, in our community is that we've done very little to validate that. Um, and so I, I hope I spoke to the point that you were trying to get me to speak about awesome no definitely exactly really really beautifully said as well um 
I want to bring in Saad in a minute, but I didn't know if Yasser wanted to add anything to, to what Tariq um, had already said, because I know this is something that you've written about a lot and, and, and think about a lot too. Yeah, sure. So um, thank you, um, for your very powerful points, all of you. Uh, as Tariq was speaking, it kind of, um, I recall also in his first um, point about the nature of the post-racial. One, one of the frustrations that I have about at least the way the public imagines, nobody in this space, nobody in this room at all, and nobody in the audience so far, uh, but publicly speaking, there's a reorganizing of the way we imagine racism, especially in what Tara calls a post-racial. And one of the frustrations is uh, the simplification of racism, its reduction to uh, kind of almost product of ignorance and um, fear and so forth. So the caricature of this racism is always in Australia, the bogan, the redneck, you know, the far right, so forth. And that becomes the manifested idea of what racism is. But I think all of us here intuitively or otherwise know that racism is far more pervasive, old, and unfortunately um, quite brilliant in its ability to appropriate our anti-racism um, as a way to take our resistance from us. And part of the issue that we're all uh, enduring and um, struggling with is the various different double binds that this kind of brilliant racism creates. Now, I, I'm not complimenting in that way, um, but just recognizing, let's say, the intelligence invested in it by various different institutions, consciously or otherwise, but also the historical inertia that makes racism pervasive. And by double bind, I mean, and this is what really the book is about, many uh, racialized peoples or the sons and daughters of the tricontinentals, those who have been colonized or otherwise, we have two choices and both choices are bad for us. And racism doesn't really provide uh, an easy way out. And so that's one thing to recognize. And I think Alexander's question is a really important one because if we broaden it, and I speak of my relationship with academia, um, I basically have two choices. And in many cases, just like the book is like, you either condemn or be condemned. And in condemning, you maybe reaffirm um, the racialized tropes about Muslims as to be measured as a, through a language of threat. And if you don't condemn, you know, you yourself might be condemned and have to endure the interpersonal and personal pressures of having the state and others and maybe even your neighbor intervene into your life. And, you know, uh, there's a, a more direct intensity of that white gaze. And so part of, and then there's a third compounding of this double bind, where you have a, a kind of pressure and the paradox of a choice. What choice do I make? I want to make the right choice. And Alexander beautifully speaks about this double consciousness in a sense, you know, I'm in, in this space, what do I have to do? And I may say something that is, it's a hypothesis too, but it's quite sobering for me. And I'm saying it in part to kind of alleviate part of the pressures of uh, resisting and that is, I don't think we're going to defeat the materiality of racism in our generation. I think that's a, you, you don't overturn 400 years of racial building very quickly. But that doesn't mean there is no way to fight back. I think our fight, just like the generations before us were about giving us rights, I think our fight is about fostering an awareness, fostering resilience, and to the point of making that resilience a kind of badge of honor. Now, forgive me for any equivocation and error in this. If you listen to the Jewish community or other communities that have endured and suffered quite clear, uh, obvious attempts at genocide, there's almost um, a pride in the survival of, from the Holocaust. Now, I, again, I'm not equivocating, but I am saying there's a moment where we have to reorganize the fact that our survival in and of itself, our prosperity, the fact that we are aware, 
is what we should recognize as our victory. The pressure of trying to overturn the racial material world and make the right choice isn't right there for us. It's not there at the moment. Hopefully, previous and uh, the next generations can create that material exit. But right now, there is an unfortunate tendency for many of us to confuse um, radical politics with martyrdom. Like, I live and die by my principles, I make no choices, um, I would rather be... Now, racism has your martyrdom covered. Racism wants you to kind of exit, wants you to <laughs> not be relevant. Um, the trick is racism has a problem with zombie-like figures, and the zombie-like figures is if you're both alive and dead. I'm present but absent. I'm in this university space, and I'm not going to go away. I'm not going to... Uh, but I also have to recognize I have to play it to, to an extent. Unfortunately, we do have to condemn subtly, slightly at times, or confirm subtly, slightly at times. Carrie Ortarek says our maybe parents' generation's ambitions of what they want for us. But if we do this with an awareness uh, that it is tied to a resistance, that it's tied inevitably to a generational fight against racism, then maybe we can carry that on to the next. You know, we don't want to be sidelined and we don't want integration. Right? We want to create new spaces. Now, if I go to work and say, I'm not going to work at this place, there's a double bind. I will lose both material capacity, uh, training, because that's what power does. It, it, <laughs> it hoards all of the opportunity. You know? And I, I take Loki's point. I absolutely think we do should think about creating new ways, new forms, new materialities, and that's part of the resistance. But in other industries uh, and fields, I think, and I'm not sure about data mining, uh, let others speak to that. I do think when you're coupled with this choice of either working or not working, participating or not participating, in many cases, there's no right choice. You don't work, there are consequences to that. You do work, there are consequences to that. And being aware of the parameters and what is afforded to us could be, at this stage, our only grace. And to be knowledgeable of where you're situated and kind of recognize what can and cannot be done at this moment is, uh, for me, our only victory. Not only, it's a bit dramatic, <laughs> it's a bit early, <laughs> is a victory. Inshallah. That's really wonderful. Um, you know, I, I, there, there are so many aspects to this book that, you know, we really haven't even uh, begun to touch on yet. Um, and I do want to get back to Dardic's request, which is to kind of tell you about some of the uh, the other chapters, you know, despite what it may look like <laughs> here right now, you know, half the contributors are sisters, unfortunately, due to the fact that they're not on the iPhone or they weren't available, they haven't been uh, able to join us. But, um, you know, Shireen is at least representing some of them uh, today. Uh, but I will, I will um, tell you a little bit more about their chapters uh, before we, we end up. But please, Saad, you've been waiting very patiently. I'd like to invite you um, to maybe either share a reflection um, based on the, the topic or to ask a question to the panelists. Uh, thank you. Um, that was, assalamu alaikum, and that was a very powerful statement that Yasif just made. I just want to appreciate that. Um, and I just have a question for uh, Tariq. Um, when you mentioned that um, CVE programs have shifted and now, you know, the numbers, you, they're no longer targeting Muslim people and uh, the, the shift is now, um, you know, like white right-wing, white supremacists, right-wing people are now being detained. I'm 
I, I haven't seen that shift. I'm, uh, and I'm curious to know where, uh, where, how, how you're seeing that. <clears throat> yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so the, the shift is definitely happening. Um, the, the ratio of Muslim to, to white referrals here in the UK has been um, becoming smaller. So there's, there's two ways it's happening. Um, I'll be honest with you. The first way is, is much more powerful than the second way. And the first way is also far scarier than the second way. The way it's happening in the first way is, in fact, that they're um, here in the UK, they're actually fudging with the categories and they're fudging with the statistics. So right now, a lot of people are being referred um, through CVE without, um, without there being an ideological cost. So there's a third category that's been constructed. It's called mixed unknown or, um, yeah, mixed unknown and something else. Um, and I've been just looking at some recent sort of FOI material that's been coming out. My, my hunch is that most of these people who are being referred are Muslims um, spring sort of from mental health issues. Um, but it's a, it's a, because it's entering the psychologized space, at least the explicitly psychologized space, <clears throat> it's colorblind, right? So they, you know, there's no way to actually really know the ethnicity of, or the, you know, because they're not saying it's Islamist, they're not saying it's far right. So we don't know who these people are. So what ends up happening is that they're going to say like, um, I think the statistics for the last, um, for the last sort of um, review of all the referrals, I think it was, it was a wild amount. It was like 37% of all referrals in a year, right? We're talking about thousands upon thousands of people, 37% of them, um, were referred for unknown, uh, unknown ideological reasons, right? So all of a sudden, then the number is decreased on the Muslim side. Um, and of course, there is, we need to acknowledge here that there is a rhetoric to shift the war on terror, right? To shift the security apparatus, to expand it towards um, the far right. That, that is something that is actually happening. It's something we should absolutely resist. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now. Um, but they are, you know, nationalism and ethno, I mean, white supremacy, and it's, you know, it's obviously its most vile forms, is, is, is something that is becoming more and more apparent. And security industry, um, though its foundations um, are, are built on ethno-nationalism, um, it believes that it can it can address that issue. So they are they are trying to invest more into doing so. But um, you know we, we know that that doesn't it doesn't change anything for Muslims. Muslims are still going to get captured. So you see, there's that there's those two angles. One, they're going to start fudging with the categories, um, whereby the the, the the official statistics of Muslims being captured becomes obscured through that sort of post-racial colorblind rhetoric. And the second is an actual, you know, cap post Capitol Hill, post, you know, <laughs> all these sort of far right governments coming up all over, the, you know, the global north. You know, this is a reality that they think that they're addressing, but really, but really is a sort of uh, autoimmune response that um, that is uh, achieving absolutely nothing. In fact, it's actually obscuring what the real solution um, to these problems are. So that's it. 
I see what you're saying. Yeah. And I, I, I totally agree with that, that it's um, I don't really see a shift in um, the policies. It's more so just rebranding and a shift in the um, the rhetoric that's being used. Um, and in, I'm, it, it's nice to understand that you're in the UK context within the US. I think there's a similar. Um, so now the. That there's a category called racially motivated violent extremism, and uh, this uh, lumps in white supremacists uh, and, and right-wing extremists with uh, 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 activists for black liberation. And so it's, and it's very, very colorblind in this way, very like, um, uh, it doesn't really specify, um, you know, uh, what category this fits into. It's just this, this broader category. And um, the new domestic terror um, uh, legislation uh, it it aims to um, uh, to 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 cr create more institutions to surveil and prosecute those within that new uh, racially you know that colorblind category of racially motivated motivated violent extrem extremism. So now they're utilizing the um, public. Um, uh, dis dissent against uh, white supremacy um, in order to get uh, this legislation passed, which will uh, uh, which will negatively affect um, uh, the, uh, black activists um, in the U.S. Thank you both. Uh, the, that's such an important um, aspect of this that we need to take into account. You know, we see the. The globalization of, of, of all of these policies in, in different parts of the world. And inshallah, inshallah, um, there is a plan for another version of this book, which will concentrate on the, the global and the political South. Um, it's still in uh, very, very early stages, uh, but inshallah, hopefully, uh, we'll be seeing something, um, a call for papers being put out. Because I think it's important that this, I mean, this book really does focus a lot on the experience of Muslims and people of color living within the Western world. Uh, but, but as we can see in this conversation, the tendrils of the war on terror run through almost every single part of the world. And to not give that its due and to not understand those experiences, I think would be a disservice. So inshallah, I hope that um, we'll be able to open some space for, for others who are experiencing similar things, but maybe in different permutations to really um, speak about what's taking place. Uh, Fatima, you've been waiting very patiently. I'd like to bring you in, please. Assalamualaikum. Thank you all for this amazing discussion. Um, I was in here for the start, but from what I've heard, it's been very fruitful listening to everyone. Um, I have more of a, I guess it's a comment, but underlies like a question that I mean I would be glad for anyone to comment on and it's more of I think Yasid was speaking about sort of the pressure to conform them as being sort of like results from the war and terror which I completely agree with. And the pressure to sort of engage I'm sorry, um, 
did everyone else catch Fatima's question? Because I, I couldn't catch it properly. Uh, it was breaking up a lot for me. It, it was cutting out for me. Yeah, sorry, Fatima. We we actually lost you pretty much for the entire time you were speaking. Um, the the connection was very weak. You were chopping in and out, so I don't think we actually heard what the the two questions were. That's all I caught. That there were there were two aspects to the is, question you were is asking. It, is it, is it, it, I'm sorry. It's still breaking up a lot. Yeah, we can barely hear you. I'm afraid. I'm sorry about that. Um, we do have um, uh, some space for people to ask questions, inshallah. Um, we have Taha. Let's see if we can bring him in, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum, hey, Taha. Assalamu. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. I'm uh, new over here and I'm so happy this is like my first uh, clubhouse room over here. Mashallah, it's a beautiful room uh, and very Salah. happy to have uh, heard what I heard and benefited from everyone. Um, I did have one point that I wanted to bring up, and I think this is so amazing that I have the opportunity to speak to you all regarding it. Um, I was curious about, so clearly this uh, to condemn ends up imposing a certain cost on uh, anyone that's operating within uh, these white spaces or spaces where um, whiteness is, you know, the overriding force. But then I also wonder, and, and part of um, the benefit of, you know, leaving those spaces and entering into the outskirts of it is that you're able to now, uh, you know, survive, right? This idea of survival. It's interesting that Brother Yasser brought up, uh, you know, a comparison to the Jewish community that focuses and very much uh, celebrates this idea of survival. But interestingly enough, this concept of, uh, you know, this comparison to the Jewish community comes in a different context from Muslims in America as well, particularly in the context of Reform Judaism. And this uh, concern with the track that Muslims are going on in America, where there's this increasing uh, uh, erosion of our uh, grounding and ethics uh, as a uh, sort of compromise that we're making for a protection and aligning uh, with other minority groups. Um, and I say minority in a secular sense. Uh, and so I guess what I'm wondering is to what degree are we operating under a materialistic uh, and secular viewpoint regarding what survival is most important and what costs we're willing to take. So perhaps, and this is a perhaps, this is not a uh, firm uh, statement, but perhaps that pressure is uh, a cost that is uh, um, the pressure to condemn and the pressure to align and all this other stuff is perhaps a cost that is uh, uh, maybe worth taking if it means the preservations of preservation of one's iman. Uh, and so suppose that the community over here is wiped out, right? The Muslim community, uh, uh, like from a like really extreme, extreme lens, right? You're, literally your livelihood is, is at risk. Um, but what would be the consequence if our Iman was at risk? And, and it is at this point, right? You hear of horrible uh, concerns regarding uh, people's Iman, people committing kufr, people, uh, you know, being confused about uh, very fundamental elements of Islamic ethics. And I think everybody knows what I'm talking about when I, when I speak to that. Um, and our iman is being eroded. And we have very clear examples in which Muslims have uh, immigrated to, uh, you know, uh, far off lands, completely devoid of Islam, and they lose their iman in masses. I literally at my uh, uh, university campus, I found two instances, it, it, how random that I found two instances where I said salam to someone who I thought was a Muslim. And they say, oh, I'm not Muslim, but my grandparents were. And who are these people? These are people in Latin America, Mexico, 
uh, Argentina, um, that their ancestors were Arab, came to Latin America. And apparently this is a phenomenon I was completely uh, uh, ignorant of, that they lost their iman after two generations. We're only one generation in with a working class uh, immigrant Muslim uh, uh, community. And obviously we have other other communities with uh, maybe perhaps greater resources that came in with like, you know, their PhD and academic uh, uh, visas. I don't want to go on too long, but my point is, is that I don't know. I, I really genuinely don't know. Perhaps it's worth uh, uh, putting ourselves at uh, material risk when we compare ourselves to our uh, greater, definitely, right? Definitely greater uh, spiritual risk. Um, and so I'll just conclude with just uh, this, uh, this one point is that what are we losing in our inability to uh, um, uh, preserve those ethics? And perhaps the alternative side of the story, perhaps uh, what Brother uh, Yasser, what Brother uh, Asim would be uh, putting forward as a book if they were on the other side and you know, chose this uh, alternative universe where you know, Muslims and masks were aligning with, with the very side that we are uh, uh, you know, writing this critique of today. Perhaps we would be writing, I refuse to condemn you know, resisting ethical erosions in a time of uh, you know, um, moral debauchery or something. I don't know, right? Where where all all institutions of uh, media and resource are geared towards uh, this sort of erosion of ethics. Um, just uh, I don't know. And please forgive me if I have offended anybody. I just this has been on my mind for a while, and I really really appreciated uh, the comparison, uh, as I mentioned early on, with a community that we have seen is is going down it's or muslims are going down a similar route um and i'll conclude with the words of the prophet وسلم, given that you know there's so many muslims here mashallah the prophet وسلم, uh i i can't quote his words exactly so i i won't do so but he said something along the lines of how uh you know the the muslims will go one in one hand in hand like hand breath or hand breath or something like that uh behind the communities of the past um even if they were to go down a snake hole they would go down it as well um so uh, this is a lot to, to uh, think about. I'm so incredibly blessed, alhamdulillah, that I have such amazing, amazing academics and uh, people of knowledge that are here that could uh, help, uh, you know, unpack this for me. I don't think people are talking about this because you don't have people, you know, literally from e each of these sides talking. Uh, so please, if, if I could benefit from you all, that would be great. Jazakallah khair. Assalamu alaikum. Barakallah um, khair. Yeah, I'm going to ask Cyrus to, to come in on this question and maybe I'll say something about it myself afterwards, inshallah. Okay, assalamu alaikum. Taha, thank you for, uh, for for joining us and for, for sharing your thoughts and questions. Um, some good points. I'm just a, a couple of threads that I can pull out. I apologize uh, in advance. It's uh, it's almost one, one in the morning here in Istanbul, and so I'm going to do the best that I can uh, to be coherent here. Uh, you know, I, I'm reminded. Uh, I was reminded. I really appreciated uh, earlier so the comments made by Alberto. You know, the quoting Toni Morrison, you know, because it reminded us as as some of the chapters really analyzed in depth and, and as we've talked about a bit here, you know, that this expectation to condemn is very much a, a manufactured demand, very much an intentionally manufactured demand. And and why, you know, I, you know, I, I did say earlier, you know, it, it, it becomes something of a of a repeated oath of allegiance. You know, but I think you know it's kind of twofold. You know, on the one hand, you know, the 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 repeated condemnation in the public eye is a way of one connecting us to that foreign enemy itself. Anyway, in the mind, just constant the headline being this group condemns this, this activist condemns that, or the quote if it even makes it to the headline. The 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 
in in the eye of the the, the casual spectator, of course, it just it just reinforces the connection uh, between the Muslim and the and the so-called terrorist. On the other hand, though, you know, and I think what's even more damaging from my perspective, because you're looking at it as a Muslim and as one who has concern for the Ummah, is that it's an act of dividing us from a global community. You know, it's a, it's a way of dividing the American Muslim or British Muslim uh, from the Muslims who are foreign, from the Muslims who do not abide by uh, the, the rules of the state that we live in, uh, who do not recognize the monopoly on violence, monopoly of violence claimed by uh, that particular state. You know, and so I, I do, I, 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 think, I, I think we just have to stop. You know, I, I tried to be, to be, to empathize. You know, I've been there uh, for a number of years. You know, I work for nonprofit organizations in the U.S. And, and we did what we could. You know, sometimes we have pressures, we have commitments um, to the land even. You know, maybe we feel that we have to stay. We have people uh, to look out for, communities that we come from and, 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 and are of. Um, but I think it's also important that we that we think about the alternatives, and and there are, you know, the world was, the world is is vast, you know, the world is is, is open to us. I mean, me personally, and this is not a perfect example, you know, but at one point, as I as I do discuss in the chapter, um, you know, at one point, it, it, I, I, my family and I had to make a decision to leave. You know, it just it did not feel right staying in the in the United States. Any longer. I mean, we still have family there, and I, I try to visit them when we can. But, but it just didn't feel right, you know, to 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 stay plugged in, right, to that world. And you know, coming to Istanbul, coming to Turkey, it, it was such a. It's been, I've been here five years, almost six years now. You know, not a perfect example at all. You know, but the conversation is totally different. You know, the like I'm sitting next to my bookshelf here, and you know, you can buy notebooks from the from the store for kids. You know, with Malcolm X and uh, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, and Hassan al Benna, you know, on the cover. You know, you we can learn fiqh, you know, every book of fiqh without fear. I know that wasn't the case maybe 40, 50 years ago, you know, but the, my point is only, you know, that there are, are alternatives, you know, that there's there, there are places for us to be our fullest selves, you know, there are, we are, we are a body, a global body, and, and I think the more that we, think of ourselves as such, you know, it, it helps us, you know, how to maintain a strong moral core. It helps us maintain a vision for where it is that we're trying to go and to just not, and to not be afraid of, uh, of the consequences, um, especially when these consequences are really, what is it, financial, professional, you know, do we get one less promotion? Do we get one less, you know, quote in the newspaper? They won't call us next time. You know, I, I, often, you know, those stakes are low. I mean, I understand you know, for some mistakes are high. Um, you know, I, I've, you know, we're all, I think many of us that have participated in this project, we're familiar with being spied upon. We're familiar with, you know, law enforcement knocking on our doors, on the doors of our families and, and threatening and raiding. Uh, we, I think we all have friends. We all have acquaintances, you know, that have faced charges. You know, sometimes the stakes are high indeed. Um, but, you know, the more that we stick together and the more that we think of ourselves, really, you know, as this um, I think, I think it, I think it's a protection for us. I'll wrap it there, inshallah. I'm, I'm looking forward to hear what Hassan has to say. Um, but uh, just thinking out loud with you all, and I appreciate the opportunity.
Zakhlachan, Cyrus, um, and I share, you know, so many of your thoughts um, about this and about some of the anxieties, of course, you know, living in the West. Um, Baha, like, of course, I've, I've, you, what, what you've asked is something that has been raised many times, over, especially over the last two, three, four years, maybe. Um, it's part of the, the discussion, right, about, you know, what are we trying to get? Are we simply in survival mode? Are we trying to um, decolonize the world, decolonize our own minds. You know, what is it that we're ultimately trying to trying to achieve at the end of all of this? But I think what happens in these discussions is that often we we end up looking at the different uh, issues that exist within our society at the level of what's going on at the street um, and how people as individuals interact with the world around them. And of course, you know, we know that that all of us as individuals, we're all, we're all extremely flawed. You know, we have so many different types of anxieties in our lives. We make decisions based on a whole host of reasons, which is why the whole concept of this book, you know, I, I felt was extremely important because it was a subject that people clearly found difficult in their personal lives, in their professional lives, in their student lives. Um, and, you know, it wasn't being addressed directly that there is this constant demand being made, which makes them feel disempowered, which makes them feel upset um, at the world that they're living in. But what I hear from, you know, another side of people that I interact with on, on a very regular basis is that, well, you know, there are all these other issues in society and we don't concentrate on them. And I actually believe that all of this is because of one central institution not doing the job that it's, it's supposed to, which is the masjid. You know, in, in my view, the masjid is a secular space. It's a space that um, Muslims go to pray, they go to ritually worship, and that is the end of it, right? That is the purpose for most masjid as they exist right now. The masjid is a space of a tarbiyah, as a space of political... Um, kind of development of thinking, of activism, of being the hub for the entire community, for the broken parts of the community, for the parts of the community that are doing well, for every single aspect of all of our lives is completely missing. That is dead. And part of that, of course, is the story of the war on terror. You know, especially for those of us who live in the West, who see our masajid refusing to make dua of kunut, you know, um, I remember Croydon Mosque, which is one of my local mosques, uh, during the height of the bombing of Fallujah in 2003, refusing categorically with their own mouths, the committee saying, we will not make dua for what is going on in Iraq because we might be suspected by the state of uh, being sympathetic towards terrorism, right? There are people dying and literally the 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 most simple thing that you can do and one of the most powerful things that you can do in order to aid another Muslim, you're refusing to do it because you teach Tawheed in the class and the aspects of Tawheed and about Allah's quwa, but you haven't internalized that because there is a fear that exists that, that disconnects our Islam within our institutions from what we're preaching and you know young people they're not stupid they're really not they see the inconsistencies of our imma of the people who are supposed to lead us 
of our masajid. They see the inconsistency between what they teach in the classroom and then what they practice in the real, real world. And, you know, I don't think that we should necessarily take it easy on them because it is our institutions that set the standard for what everybody else does in society. And so if we're going to talk about reform, we have to reform the very essence of what our community is supposed to be, which is the masjid. You know, and that is that that for me is, you know, really at the heart of of where a lot of your concerns lie, which is we 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 see all of these different movements emerging, all these different people in all these different spaces doing their thing. But they're largely doing those things because what happens is that we don't provide any leadership, we don't provide answers, we don't provide solutions, um, because we have various hang-ups. And the war on terror as a construct is one of the things that has delegitimized our ability to be able to practice Islam itself fully and without fear. And while that fear exists, a true relationship to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cannot exist. And that that creates all sorts of dissonances, whether it's on the left or the right or whatever, you know, and yeah, that's, I guess, my view on this. We're already over time a little bit. Um, there was a question by Minal. She's already been brought up and I definitely don't want to, uh, you know, kind of leave her hanging. So if everybody doesn't mind, I'm just going to let the room carry on for a little longer to allow her to, to either make a comment or ask a question and then maybe um, shortly after that. But I really appreciate everybody's time in, in staying with us for so long. Minal, please. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, I hope you're all well. Nice. Um, it's not much of a question, more of a comment. Um, and to be honest with you, firstly, I really wanted to thank you for even hosting this room. You know, in general, I think it's so, so important that as a Muslim community, we have academics, we have activists that are willing to engage in this stuff and willing to bring the public along with it. Um, I, I'm a tiny bit starstruck. I'm trying to play it real cool because um, in my undergrad and postgrad degree, I have referenced many of you on stage countless numbers of times throughout essays and my dissertation. So thank you very much for your work in this space. Um, just to kind of finish off, I guess one of the questions I have for you all, um, and please, you know, whoever wants to take this, feel free to do so. Moving forward, what do you think we as a community should be doing to address you know, issues surrounding surveillance, issues surrounding identity and, you know, being in the West and kind of dealing with all of these conflicting things that are happening to us. Thank you again so much for your time and apologies if this has overrun and I've rambled on a bit. No, not at all. Thank you so much. Um, I'm not sure who wants to who wants to take a crack at that. But Shireen, how about you? We haven't heard from you in a while. Um... I will be with you all in a minute. Okay, sure. Anybody else? Uh, Kareem, maybe? Hi. Um, my reception just went crazy and I completely missed the question. Can anyone fill me in on what I'm answering? We're, I guess it's actually a very good question because it's it's kind of helping us get to the end of um, today's discussion, which is really about kind of ways forward. Um, Hit me with it. In relate 
Yes, you know what? 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 Some of your ways forward, come on, man. Tell us. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's the question, bro? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's uh, effectively. Yeah. How? How? What do you? What do you kind of perceive as? Um, now you can correct me if I'm wrong. Like, you know, like how? How do we forge a path out of this kind of situation that we're in right now? In relation Oof. to kind of our relationship to the state, our relationship to, um, you know, all of these systems and structures that we see. Um, Minaj, is anything you want to add? No, I just wanted to apologise because I know it's a bit of a heavy question to end off on. So sorry if they've put you on the spot. Um, I would say um, planting seeds for trees we might not sit in the shade of. I think um, in different ways, uh, different people that I know on this call have already done that have set up institutions have been able to set certain precedents whether it is legally or potentially artistically too or just in terms of publishing so i think it's about setting precedents which um other generations will benefit from uh, going forward to keep pushing forward, to keep landing those blows where possible and to encourage younger generations to think critically because they're really being uh, miseducated in the, the schooling system here. You know, Operation Legacy, for those that uh, may not know about it, was a government policy whereby they disposed of, hid, burned or sunk at the bottom of the sea uh, documents from 37 different British colonies. But that, that Operation Legacy logic has played out across British curriculums when it comes to, you know, occupying 14 million miles of the globe and what that then in takes that there's such a gap in people's understanding of how and why they are here. You know, 20 fastest growing economies, none of them are in Europe and several of them are former British colonies. So in a country where about 30% at best of the country know a language other than English, people are going to struggle, especially as Scottish and potentially Welsh independence could be imminent. People are really going to struggle here to understand who they are, where they are. And I think that the more that you can look into the history and um, develop a sort of alternative curriculum for yourself um, is, is better. But again, I think it's about building institutions and setting precedents that um, the, the, the following generations will be able to benefit from. Can I, can I come in on that? Sorry, Manal, I was putting my child back to sleep. Um, I want to echo what Loki, uh, what Karim was saying, and also what Yasser, um, you know, really um, nicely put it, um, you know, saying that we need to create spaces for, um, for each other, right? We need to create spaces for us to be able to speak about this, um, you know, create support networks. And I think one of one of uh, one of many of the worst things that Prevent has done and CVE in general is that it has um, it has removed our uh, safe spaces, right? It has removed this element of safety of trust, which is so fundamental 
to everything trust in our mosques in our shiuch in our friends in our colleagues and our teachers and i think if i could do anything it would be to provide um you know as as kareem was saying like the younger generation especially with a space to speak um you know that that's what i would say is what we need to do um you know sometimes these platforms especially twitter i think um, can be uh, not very helpful in this respect, but we need to find ways to move around this. Uh, we need to find ways to have more conversations, uh, which includes diverse voices, um, you know, think about alternative curriculums, but, you know, get into the institutions, uh, become the academics, become the lecturers, become, um, you know, passing this knowledge around creating other spaces outside of the university to do so. Um, so that would be what I would say. And I hope that we can continue, you know, having similar dialogues as we have tonight, because I think it's been super beneficial. OK, so I don't know if uh, Shaf, Yasser, Tariq um, or Cyrus want to add anything um, before I bring this to a close, guys. Um, anything to add? Shaf, we haven't heard from you in a while. Uh, so yeah, I just think it's. Um, I think it, as Kareem said earlier, he was talking about the ARPANET and the history of the ARPANET, which became the internet, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think this isn't just the preserve of specifically that example that the preserve of geeks anymore. I think it's understanding the understanding the history of the systems that we engage with. And when I say system, it's not just a technological system; it's a societal system. And it's learning that vocabulary of these systems and that will enable people to think critically about how they engage with the world around us in terms of you know, specific systems. Um, because we, ha we have been conditioned to be passive consumers and users of, of, of just, 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 just to flow through um, this, this kind of production line of like, this surveillance capitalism kind of production line of, of, of just giving away data just because we just we just do it passively. Um, I think it's thinking critically about the system, systems that we use, learning the vocabulary of these systems, and um, and then and because it's with this data that we give away, we are then defined by organisations and institutions, and and by and again, it's it's, it's the highest bidder. As Karim said earlier, it, it, this this data is the highest bidder. Who will define us in their own through their own lens? And sometimes it's about well rejecting those definitions. Um, not, not not to plug it at all, but when we launched the RIS test, me and Dr. Sadi Habib and myself launched the RIS test, we, we chose not to be defined by the way that Hollywood um, and Bollywood defines Muslims. And we're kind of measuring that in a way like, no, we're, this is not okay. And we're re rejecting those definitions. So I think it's about understanding understanding the, uh, uh, the systems and, um, and just engaging more critically. Yasser, Tarek, um, Osiris, you guys? Yasser, please. Sure. Can you hear me? Uh, yeah, so I, yeah. maybe uh, <clears throat> just probably slightly addressing Taha's point, which, and this is tangential. I don't know if it's directly related to the question about future work and what we can and cannot do to ensure our um, successes and prosperity and 
and inshallah there's here and all but i i do think there's seemingly growing tension um within i'll be specific about the muslim conversation and maybe just social media i don't know um between let's say traditionalists on one side and activists on the other material those who want to focus on supposedly the materialist conditions and others who want to focus on the spiritual uh, preservation um <clears throat> i just want to add that that's now i'm not sure uh what taha's argument was specifically um uh, with regards to condemnation but i do think future spaces need to be able to uh, have a conversation about that supposed tension because it seems to me as one of the underlying uh products of uh, a racialized society that secularizes us into multiple parts that um now this dimensions of us which are separated we're kind of fragmented uh, as a voice we we're isolated spiritually and isolated materially and i think uh, one way forward at least for the muslim community potentially um is to have ongoing and engaging debates that i think would rinse free rinse us free from these secularizing or racializing forces and pressure to separate and fragment fragment ourselves uh, racism doesn't just work top down right it's, it has a lateral dimension um and that lateral it it kind of um puts pressure on how we relate and see one another and there's a huge level of mistrust distrust uh in some cases dislike uh, for one another now that may be legitimate not illegitimate i'm not going to get into those details but one potential way forward is to have ongoing and engaging conversation with the supposed parts of our faith that are seemingly and i'm just using social media as a measure i could be entirely wrong i've been been separated uh, i.e. the spiritual from the material and um i don't think there can be uh, any form of uh, resistance to racism's attempt to erase us if we don't take all of us the, the holistic elements of islam with us in our in our future but um from at least from me to all of you and to the audience barakallahu feekum i appreciate the invitation um and inshallah we will continue the conversation in many many different ways and thank you arsan for continuing hosting and all the other speakers um may allah reward you i mean i mean ya rab tarak yeah khair i mean i was just maybe going to end it with a small reminder um and i'm really picking up on uh, Osiris and Shireen and Yasser and Ajit I mean everyone what everyone said so far um I think we need to remember that I mean we've explained now the act of condemning right and what that does for the individual obviously plays that sort of role of being a good muslim but we need to remember and I think this speaks now to that question that Minel brought up you know what's the future for us how do we move forward and I think one thing that um Awesome one though. You know, I think one thing we have to shift is from speaking in eyes to speaking in wees, right? And one way about speaking in wees when it comes to this act of condemnation is recognizing that when you condemn, you're actually not only exonerating yourself, but you're throwing someone else under the bus. Right? You're throwing you're throwing other Muslims, potentially other racialized Muslims, other racialized minorities under the under the bus should they refuse to condemn and i think there's this element of this recognition of the of the we that's so central to us being able to move forward and the sort of validating of each other and i i'll, I'll be honest 
you know, we're all, we're all tasked with that responsibility. You know, we're all tasked with that responsibility to see and validate each other and what we're going through. And I think truly, if we were to really do that, you know, um, we, we would be far, far more hesitant to so willingly engage in such practices and, and manners of speaking that, that would throw other people in the bus, under the bus. And I think this is, this is really very central, you know? So now when someone, if I'm, if I'm, you know, someone comes to me, let's say, whatever, my boss comes to me and says, condemn, right? Now, the, the sort of liberal capitalist impulse, which is hyper-individualistic, is for me to think about myself, my own well-being, right? So maybe I don't want to do it morally. I'm going to think to myself, I don't want to do this morally, right? But now if I'm starting to really, really start to envision who, who might not have that privilege, you know, that, you know, let's say someone who, um, uh, you know, is not whatever, is not a lecturer, is not whatever, you know, all the range of pri privileges that Allah has blessed me with. And they, these are all protections. And now someone else is in that exact same position and they refuse to get them, well, they're, they're going to lose their jobs, you know? And so there's a point here whereby we have to capture that responsibility for each other to be able to validate each other in that sense as well. And, and I think that's, that's very, very important in the move forward and create these sort of spaces whereby, you know, the moment we feel alone, that's exactly as yesterday was sort of explained, that's sort of, that's, that's exactly what racism is going to achieve, right? And I think there's a point here whereby we want to always build, you know, or at least bear in mind, you know, even if you're completely alone, you know, as Cyrus was explaining, you know, you're part of an, this, this, this invisible community, you know, that, you know, we've got your back, you've got our back. And we don't have to see each other. We don't have to speak any words. We just know that it exists. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to end it on that note. Zakalachen, Tarek. Um, Cyrus, do you want to um, make any last comments before I close this up? Sure. Just, I guess, a last thought, you know, the, you know, for 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 anyone you know who is who is still you know who is who's dealing with the state you know who is in this you know space of politics you know i think you know the instinct has to be to oppose anything absolutely any measure or precedent that gives the government more control or more access we have to just oppose it categorically even and i believe it was Tark was mentioned this earlier, I wanted to amplify, even if that seems to be against, quote unquote, against a right wing, you know, that we imagine to be our enemy as well, or that is our enemy, that even those measures strengthen government's power against us as well. I don't think that ends up being in our interest. Always oppose it. Uh, but separate from that, because I, I really, I'm not in that space myself anymore, alhamdulillah, you know, really now, you know, my trade is, is I found another trade so that I don't have to work in, in that nonprofit industrial complex. And really now, you know, having a daughter, you know, I have a three-year-old daughter and I, don't, I can't think of anything that I've ever done in my life that's more important than raising her, you know, and trying to give her and trying to give our youth, our kids, our community's kids, the tools to understand, to, to, to critically analyze you know, the world that they are inheriting, 
you know, I've had a number of moments, you know, in my life and especially in youth work where I've had to appreciate, I've been shocked by, you know, it sounds weird to say, I don't feel that old myself, but, but how young, you know, many of our, our, our kids are and how long the war on terror has been going on, right? Many of us were already adults or at least teenagers, right, on 9-11 or, you know, we grew up with some sense of a before and an after, or we, at least we had, you know, some awareness or our parents maybe helped us have some awareness, right, of the world and, and, and you know, who the good guys were or who the good guys weren't, right? But for so many of our kids growing up now, this is, this is normal, you know, the war on terror is, is, is a part of daily life. You know, it's natural that their government is at war with their with their ummah, basically, and and I don't think the war on terror is anything short of that. Um, and so, you know, that's the biggest thing too. You know, I think is is helping our is teaching the history. You know, giving a sense of the terrain. You know, we can't let up on that um, because I think you know, as long as our kids you know have some fitra, they have have some 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 foundation. Um, you know, they they can't help but be radicalized by that history, by that knowledge in a good way, you know, radicalized and activated, right? Awake, awake and ready for what comes. Uh, but may Allah bless all of us, all of our families, all of you, uh, give you the best of this life and the best of your have to thank you to, to everyone else, you know, speaking here and everyone who contributed, everyone who listened. I love you all for the sake of Allah. Uh, As-salamu alaykum. As-salamu so it just leaves me to, to close up then. And um, first of all, to thank the, the contributors and all those who, who asked questions. It was really wonderful to be able to engage in this discussion with you. I just want to end by um, just reflecting a little bit about um, the passage of the last four months since the book was released. So for those of you, of you who haven't read, uh, had a chance to read the book yet, my introduction to, to all of these brilliant uh, authors really focuses, focuses on my own experience, um, having done a TV interview with a very popular um, uh, broadcast journalist, his name's uh, John Snow, who was interviewing me about, you know, various a case of an ISIS guy. And he asks me to condemn. What I really focus, though, on more than the interview and, and maybe unpicking it is more about the impact that it left on me. And I write about, and really this was the first time I've wrote about this, um, the physiological markers that he left on my body um, that every time I then encountered the media since that interview in 2015, I felt a deep sense of anxiety. Uh, my heart rate would, would increase. I would feel a, a deep sense of dread. Um, I, I've done a couple of interviews, a few interviews since then, um, and they were all difficult, even when I felt like I was going into a very safe space. I still felt that same degree of, of tension. And, and what was interesting is that I, I knew exactly what was going on with my body when this was happening. I was, trauma is something that I've studied a little bit. And so I was able to rationally think about what was happening to me in these moments, but I had no ability to control my body from doing so. Um, and since since the book came out, I've had so many young people in particular, especially students, emailing me, telling me that they actually have the same experience when they go into the classroom. And that felt, that felt important to, to me that, you know, others were able to recognize what was going on with them. They were able to identify that they were feeling the same, the same sense of trauma 
um, after having experienced something difficult and then have being forced to go back into those spaces. But recently, uh, alhamdulillah, and I don't know if it's gone away forever, but since since the passage of the book starting, since the passage of these conversations taking place and the passage of us having all of this wonderful feedback and people writing to us saying that they feel that they've been seen, that they've been heard, that they that they have a vernacular and a pathway to understanding this particular issue. I don't feel that same sense of dread anymore. My body doesn't react viscerally in the way that it was um, these last five or six years. And really, you know, I'm so thankful that working with these wonderful contributors and hearing hearing them speak and reading their words has been such a catharsis for me personally. Um, and 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 really <laughs> thinking that this might be helpful for for others, I ended up in a situation where I ended up helping myself um, without even knowing that that was going to be the end result of it. And so, really, jazakum lachad to 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 all of the contributors, these wonderful scholars and activists and people who really who take hits on behalf of us all. And that's the thing that needs to be said. And that's why, you know, I ask you to please keep them all in your du'as because they deserve them. These are all people who are, who are willing to and do take risks every single day to their lives, to their families' lives, to their kind of personal uh, reputations, to their livelihoods for the sake of protecting their communities, for the, for the sake of protecting this ummah. So keep them in your du'as because, you know, they, they deserve them. Um, and, you know, make for us all, inshallah, and as I will make for all of you. Um, I hope that you benefited and enjoyed this, um, this session, inshallah. I look forward to hopefully being involved in an, another one before too long. So take care, everybody. I really appreciate the fact that this went on much, much longer than uh, it was supposed to, but I hope that it was of benefit. Hayakumullah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.